and uh, this morning in a couple different directions, and uh, I believe in miracles and that you can be able to connect the dots when we're all done there, hopefully. A faith builder, a couple of them first. <coughs> CAM uh, does work down just everywhere, and I'm excited about them, and uh, I was visiting with a friend of mine, uh, Claire Zimmerman, he's also a friend of Dan and Ruthie from Haiti Days, I think, or something like that. And I met him in Pennsylvania, and he was telling me about, they were down there working, and there's a, a small uh, conservative group or an Amish group from Pennsylvania who does a lot of the food at these floods, and so they have a trailer all equipped for it, and they have people that, and they say, here's where we grab a hold. And they were down there, and they were about one or two days into this thing, power off, flooding all over the place, and they're serving thousands of meals the first day, and then the generator quits. And every the power's off, so every generator available is being used, and it's in the evening, and people are closed, and Claire Zimmerman's telling me this, and he said, so the administrator at that point came out and said to his friend, and he had names and I forget names, it doesn't matter, it's the Lord that provided, but he said, hey, get a generator, because the freezers that held all the food and the refrigerators were run by generator. And he said, well, where am I supposed to get a generator? I don't know, just get a generator. So he got in the pickup, and he drove a little bit, and then he pulled to the side of the road, and he said, Lord, I need a generator, and I don't know where to go. So after that, he thought, maybe I better go to the city hall. Of course, it's closed. He gets there. The parking lot's empty, except for one car. And... All the offices are dark and there's nobody around except for the gentleman that's locking the door behind him and leaving. So he went over to him and he said, Hey, uh, I'm with CAM. We're supplying. Yeah, I know who you are. And he said, Well, we have a lot of food and our generator gave out. And he said, Well, around the back there of the town hall, there should be a generator and a trailer. should be fueled up. Hook up to it. So he took his pickup and he hooked up to this generator and he took it out for them to use. They plugged it in and problem solved. And the next morning, a guy came in with a fuel truck and he said, Hey, where's the generator? I'm supposed to keep the generator fuel, full of fuel. And I thought, isn't that something, the way the Lord provides? Isn't that a coincidence? It was a faith builder. <clears throat> right now I'm receiving a couple of emails a day or a week from CAM, a project they have where they have search and rescue. And I was going to bring the stack of papers that came in in the last week or 10 days. Now they're out and they're searching for a body of a two-year-old in a flood uh, in Virginia and Pennsylvania and Illinois. Here there's a guy fell off the boat. Here they're searching for this person they lost. And it's on a regular basis. 
And uh, I just praise the Lord for what He's using and what He's doing with CAM. I was just blessed by it. This week in the Philippines, the president over there is known for making strong statements. And he's uh, really extreme. He had put a bounty out on all drug dealers and encouraged everybody to... Uh, shoot the drug dealers and thousands and thousands of people lost their lives. And I follow, when I see the Philippines in the news, I follow it because a friend of mine, Galen Martin, had spent, we grew up neighbors and in the same church, and he had spent years over there changing the Bible to a dialect there back in the Philippines. So I follow it. Anyway, he said, there is no God. And he said, anybody that can prove that there is a God, I'll resign the same day. He said, so I encourage you, anybody, take a selfie with God or prove to us that there is a God and resign. He says, I just don't buy it. He said, "Uh, you were not involved, but now you're stained with the original sin. He said, I just don't, I just don't believe there's a God. And uh, I was thinking, what, uh, what does he do with stuff like uh, all of a sudden there's a genera- generator available? And uh, I cringe when I see people saying that God doesn't exist. Another news article here, and I'm about done with uh, news articles, but another news article was child training article this week, and a lot of yous are raising children. And you're right in that, and so I thought it would be helpful. And uh, there's a Turgeon and a Wright. They're uh, psychologists, children psychologists, and they just wrote a book. Then say this, I think, is the book. You can forget the name of the book. Uh, I don't recommend it at all. But the news article said, well, caught my eye. They said, never say these things here. Um how, to a child, never say these. How many times have I told you not to do that? These are things you're never supposed to say to children. Or, because I said so. Or, I've had it with you. Or, why don't you listen? Or, stop crying, you're acting like a baby. My own version of that is, stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. Or, shake it off, you're okay. These are things that you're never supposed to say to a child. They say, in difficult moments, it's critical to resist the knee-jerk instincts to reprimand, speak sternly, isolate, or in any way shut down communication, they explain. And so... I was thinking about that there, and I was thinking, so what do you suggest? Well, they had suggestions. These, these are the three suggestions. You get down and you make eye contact with the child that's having a meltdown at a store, and you tell them that you understand why they're upset, and then you explain to them why they're upset. And finally, 
you solve the problem with some sort of compromise that will motivate their children to behave like holding their hand and singing a silly song as they leave the store. That's a quote. I didn't add the word silly. They did. Uh, if you're at Walmart and there's a meltdown, uh, get down on their level. And uh, I thought it ties in with today's lesson where it says, you know what? Um, there's going to be disobedience to parents in the last day. There's going to be things. And I understand... I understand that there's another side to this. But to draw your mind to thinking, those things are not going to work. Um, and I understand that we have, we have made mistakes on the other side of that dare coin. But uh, they lost me at that. Uh, you get down on your knees and say, hey, um, can we compromise here? I, I often liken the news articles to read what people comment on the items. And uh, one lady said, okay, it's 8 a.m. And I said all those things on the list so far. <laughs> and I could relate to that. <laughs> one person write, when I acted up, my parents handled my distress with a swat across the backside and I turned out fine. This pandering to the children's temper tandem or bad behavior has resulted in a generation of snowflakes that we have now. I don't com compromise with my children. This is a dictatorship, not a de democracy. <laughs> and I could relate a little bit more to that there. So turn to Luke 15, if you will. So I have scattered thoughts. I was thinking a little bit of what you were thinking of, Marv, this morning, as far as uh, dad passing on. And a couple of weeks ago, my dad also passed on. And thanks to those who send a card or an email or a text encouragement. Dad was 89, and I was... The day they called me and said he's gone, I was... In the evening, I was laying in bed, and I was thinking, there's kind of a pressure that lifted. I was so glad that he wasn't trapped in that there um, body that he was trapped in for so long there. And I was, there's there's a little bit of pressure lifted, and I was grateful that he could, could pass on. I have a, a few thoughts that hopefully tie together. It was interesting to go to the funeral again, uh, going back to a church where I grew up at, where on the white, there was a white trim board with black hooks where all the hats hung on. And uh, it was so neat to, to see the, the culture and the way they do it. Like you all walk up, uh, ladies on one side and men on the other side, and as you get to the coffin, uh, you take your hat off and you walk by the coffin, and then uh, you put your hat back on again, and then the family gathers around there. You do that first, and then the family gathers around there and they close a, a, an old style coffin out of wood, and somebody in the family closes that, and then we all follow that coffin down to the graveyard, and there 
uh, they bury and they bury with them old straps. That's kind of scary to watch. And the uh, people that aren't used to it are asked to be pallbearers, and they bury that. Uh, they they let the thing down as the coffin down as are uh, the yeah coffin down as as carefully as they can. And then they put a a piece of plywood on there, and then they close it. And then we go into the church for an hour, hour and a half, two hours of sermon. And then we go have lunch, and we turn the page. And I think that's what Marv was talking about this week, as you kind of think through those things. You think about, uh, you know... The, the history that, that's there. And we sang a mournful song at, uh, out at, uh, burial, Where the Roses Never Fade. I was just blessed with that. I'm going to a city where the streets of gold are laid, where the tree of life is blooming, and the roses never fade. One of my favorite songs as I put my thoughts together with what dad was to me, was here they bloom but for a season. And I remember dad and we were together as children, siblings, around a couple campfires that week and we shared memories and shared things that we thought of. And I remember how dad, you know, when I was young and we'd unload trucks, he was short, but he was strong. And he grabbed two 100-pound bag of potatoes and dragged them to the back of the truck. And I could just hardly, he'd, he'd help me some, and I could just hardly drag one. Or the cottonseed meal that we took to farmers, and he'd back his semi up the barn hill, and he grabbed two 100-pound bags. Uh, and I was thinking about, they were sharing about one time, they, we had a shop where he changed oil on his truck. And there was a compressor about that high up on the top story of that shop. And us boys weren't strong enough to help him. And we tried, and it was just too heavy. And he said, let's get this thing up on my shoulder. And we got the front end loader and got it up on the shoulder and steadied him. And he picked it up on his shoulder and walked up those steps with him and set it up top there. And um, here they bloom before season is what I, I was, as I was pulling that whole thing together. <laughs> Soon their beauty is decayed. You know, Dad couldn't stand on his own for the last. Uh, he just, he couldn't eat by himself. He couldn't recognize his children. He, uh, but yet it was not long ago when I remember him as a teenager where a teenager that had lost his way where he waited up for me one morning and the sun was just coming up and I remember <coughs> the look on his face today. He was a strong man back then yet but I remember the look on his face. And you know th- those things... <coughs> Here they bloom, but for a season. And at the end, he couldn't stand up by himself there. He was just, 
But I remember when we were going to leave the church in there, uh, we had uh, a deck out back of our home uh, trailer where Ruthie and I started out. And I can see him, there was a railing along the side, and he came to the back door, and I, I was sitting on the, the deck. And I can see him leaning on the railing, and I can see his face, the expression on his face, and he said, Claire, why do you think you have to leave our church? And I told him the reasons that we were struggling with. And he said, you know, I agree with a lot of, of those struggles. And wherever you tie into, make sure you follow the Lord's teaching. In this world, we have our troubles. Satan snares, we must evade. And I was thinking, as I thought of the funeral since, you know, my dad wasn't a perfect person by no means. And... One time he failed, and back then we had a, a saying, he had, he had to stand up in church. Well, some of you may be familiar with that there, but in, the, in that setting, the minister would say, this person has said that they failed, and they're sorry for it. And the person would stand up and nod and then sit back down again. And he had failed and was so disappointed in himself, and he had to stand up in church, if you will. And uh, years went by, and he failed again. And he was so embarrassed by it, that failure. And he felt like he should. My mom told me this later, so much, much later, when I was, was married and we were sitting down talking. And she said, um, Dad told her that he wanted to come through and he just didn't have the strength to, to, to come through. And so he prayed and he prayed to the Lord that something would happen in his life, that it would be pain or something would happen that it would get him ready to say he's sorry. He said to the Lord, I just don't have the strength to, to, to say that. Well, one night, he got pain so bad in his back that when the ambulance came, they had to time to the thing. It was uh, some kind of a back thing which they operated on. And, and it gave him the strength, because it was an answer to his prayer, but it gave him the strength to come through and to clear things up, to make it right. In this world, we have our troubles. Satan snares we must await. We will free from all temptation where the roses never fade. I was thinking, you know, I wonder, Dad had different advice for me as we went along on purchasing a business or on buying a truck or buying a restaurant. I'd ask Dad, and I can see him give him the pros and cons, you know, and he, he had advice for me through my Growing up years, I remember the two spankings that I can remember. One was for biting Samuel in the belly, and the other one was for touching, I believe, one of the original adding machines and goofing it up. And they were both when I was under five years old. <coughs> so, 
I remember all these things that he uh, told me through the years, the advice he gave me. Um, what I was wondering is what he, what for advice he would give me now from his vantage point. Uh, he's crossed the river of Jordan. We're all going to pretty soon. I just wondered what he would say. One time he came back to Ruthie when I was gone because Ruthie did some book work. He dropped it off and he stood at the door and he gave it to her. And then he said, boy, it's warm in here. And she said, yeah, it is. And he said, how warm is it in here? And it was in our trailer. We didn't have air conditioning. It was just right around, just under 100 degrees. So he called me that evening and he said, Claire, we're going to get an air conditioner in there today. And he said, yeah. I said, yeah, we're, we're looking at that. We're looking at for a used one, a good used one. And he said, no, Claire, we're going to get one today, tonight. We're going to get an air conditioner. Ruthie was uh, expecting a child. And, and um, he often had advice for me, timely advice, fatherly advice. He was a parent. And I just wonder what he'd say today. You know, from his vantage point, what would be important today? Bob Goff in one of his books says, We get to decide what we will give to the world and what we will take from it. Love big, big and pack light. I remember his discipline. I remember his words. I can see his face. Uh, but I wonder what he'd say today. That, I, that song came to my mind, I want us to be together in heaven. And I was looking at Luke 15, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, grumbled, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eats, eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness to go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth to his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than the ninety-nine that just persons that need no repenting. It was Christ, the first person who had that no child left behind thought. And I was thinking of these things in terms of uh, dad leaving and, and what he would say to us tonight. And I, and I thought something was brought up here lately about that Chile mining accident. And so, I'd like to hold them up against each other. In August 5th, 2010, there was a mining accident in Chile, and 33 miners were feared dead. And they didn't know where they were or if they were alive. And in those mines, they had a lot of uh, uh, roads that went back and forth from the surface in the mountain. And they went back and forth, and a lot more than that, and they go a couple miles back and forth and they'd go way down into the into the mine and 
this mine rumbled and cut off any kind of uh, entrance. So they started going down the air shafts and they started trying to find. And then uh, on the 6th, it rumbled again and it closed just everything up. And it would took it took years to get down there and it would take years to go back. And they didn't know if the miners were alive or not. And so that was their first thing. So they got nine drilling rigs that drilled small holes. And what they were trying to do was go down to cavities down below the ground, many hundreds of feet down below the ground. And they were drilling these things, and they got into the first one that was about a 1,000 feet down. And then as their drill went through, they left it set there for a while. And then they went down to another place that was about 1,500 feet down, and they got to that there area where there was another room that you could take cover, but there didn't seem to be anybody around there. And then they went further down, and this took days, and took everybody working together, and every, uh, to their benefit, the, the mining company said, hey, we're in over our heads, we need all the help we can get. So, day 10 or 12 in there, the miners could hear them drilling. Way down there, way down at the bottom, 2,300 feet down into the mine, 33 miners were trapped. And they were all down in there, not knowing whether they were coming down. They'd hear this drilling through those first week they'd hear this drilling and then it would stop and then it would start again and they'd hear this drilling and they hear it at one point they heard it about a hundred feet out of their area they could tell that it was out of the area they missed the area that they were looking for because the rock was so hard and when they drill they couldn't go straight they had to engineer it and so they had to figure out the deflect and how. So these guys were down there, 33 of them, and there was a room that you could go to, a safe room that had more protection, and there was supposed to be food in there. And there was just a tiny little bit of food in there. And so they, at first they went for the food, and then they thought, wait a minute, it's going to be a long time. And so they had something like one sip of some kind of milk and one teaspoon of something to eat every two days. And they waited for their rescuers. They waited to be rescued. And they struggled with trying to keep this all together. It was, it's, it's dark down there. It's a, it's a fairly big area they're in. And they don't know if they'll ever be rescued or if, or if the drill will ever come to their place at all. The people up on top were gathering and their families were gathering and people uh, getting more and more information and how do we do this and listening devices. They got every, uh, so many countries involved. They got NASA involved. They got drilling companies involved. They got, uh, uh, like, the United States involved in a lot of different ways as far as... And so, up top are these families, and they're coming out and just hanging around the opening of where this mine is. 
And so they start putting tents there because they're staying there 24 hours a day. They're waiting on their dad. They're waiting on their husband. And they don't know if they're alive or not. And so this city, uh, this little town of tents springs up and they call it Camp Hope as time goes along. So they weren't sure how much oxygen would be down there and and how big the part was yet if there was a part. And uh, the, the, the temperature down there heated up by the earth core, they're looking at 95 to 105 degrees and they're looking at 95% humidity. And that's, that's where they're at. And Henrigus was somebody that they called the preacher. That was one of them along down there. And the crew foreman trying to keep everybody's attitude and sanity together said, Hey, would you have a prayer for us? And so 33 of them knelt. An article out of the New York Times back then. Henrigus says this prayer. We aren't the best of men, but Lord, have pity on us. Jesus Christ, our Lord, let us enter the sacred throne of your grace. The men knelt around, and the crew foreman saw his filthy, sweating, unshaven companions, men of different faith, in poised of penance and desperation. Some closed their eyes praying, whispering, some crossed themselves, some were crying, others were looking perplexed as if they couldn't quite believe they were on their knees begging God to rescue them. A sip of milk and a spoon of tuna every two days. Well, day 17, one of the drills broke through their um, cavity that they were in. And so when a, when a drill broke through a cavity, they quit and listened. And some of the engineers weren't sure there was some noise up top, but it sounded like people were banging. It sounded like something was hitting on that drill. And they had a note ready just in case something like this would happen in an old uh, grease rag off of one of the old pickups down there, and they p- tied the note in there. And this was day 17 that they were down there. They banged on the drill bit August 22nd. And they wrote, We are all well in the shelter, the 33 of us. <coughs> and they put that on the bottom of the drill bit. And so when the company pulled that drill bit back up, uh, and they found this note, and by now it was a worldwide uh uh, news article. It said, we are all well and in the shelter, the 33 of us. Can you imagine how the families felt? How um, the, the children and the, and the wives felt as they said, there's hope. There's a little bit of hope here. Now, it was by no means over. They had to drill a couple more holes to try to force oxygen down there. And they had to put some uh, food down there. And they were worried. They got NASA involved on how to 
what these people can eat without going into some kind of shock. And so they put some food down there and they got communications. They dropped a line down and uh, told them how to handle it. And then the phone rang up top and they picked up the phone and they said from down in the mine, I can hear you. What they had now was a little bit of hope. But the drilling rig said, okay, to get a person out of there, we need a certain amount of width so that they can fit through. And we need to drill that, and it's going to take us till Christmas to get that. And the NASA people said, we don't know if they can take make it that long. We'll try without sun and in that degrees. And... And so they, everybody started helping. And then there's a, a man, Brandon Fisher, from Pennsylvania, not, not too far out of Lancaster County, more in the Coatesville area. He picked up his phone and he said, Hey, we have a drilling rig that we think can do it faster. And so everybody worked together for one reason, to get them folks out of the mine. Brandon Fisher and his crew flew over there. They set up, they got the drill over there, UPS hauled some heavy equipment over there, they got it set up, and they called it Plan B. Uh, plan A was, they had a, a guy starting to drill there, they set it up uh, on, uh, on the 26th uh, of August, and it was Plan A, Strata 95. The problem with it, it took five gallons per second of water to cool the bit. And it was having trouble with it, and, and that was the one that was going to get down by Christmas. So Brandon Fisher and his crew set up, and they started drilling. And they had a drill that had some heads on and would pound it and would get all the stuff up there, and it would go through that hard rock a little faster. But their plan was to drill a 12-inch hole and then to drill a bigger hole. And they were thinking maybe 30 days. So the men down below would hear this drilling, but then different things would happen and all of a sudden this drill was broke and this drill was broke and all the drilling would quit. And they'd still be down there. And they'd ask, hey, tell us what's going on. Tell us. And they tried to give them positive feedback. Um... A psychiatrist said their faith is the only thing that's going to see them through this thing. If they quit believing in God or quit believing that there is hope, it won't take long till it disintegrates. And before that, the 17th day that they were down there, they were already figuring, okay, how's this end? And they were thinking, well, some pass on first. Would that be food for the rest of them? And they struggled through the hard decisions that they were, that they were coming. So, these both drilling rigs had a lot of problems. And one would go for a while and then the other one would, and they traded off. They finally got plan C. Took, this is a big rig that's supposed to be able to drill pretty fast. And it took 42 semi loads of equipment and they needed a huge field to sit it up in and it took them nine days to set it up and then it started and it didn't go too long until it was having problems and at some time again all three of them would be shut down 
At one point they gave up on plan C because uh, it wasn't designed for rocks that were this hard. Day 36, everything was shut down because of hydraulics. Uh, day 37 is where they, they set it up there. The struggle of knowing whether they're going to be saved or ever pulled out of there was tremendous. It was just an incredible struggle. 33 days after Plan B got there, Brandon Fisher and his crew, uh, they broke through with their final larger hole. And then Brandon Fisher and his crew packed up and went home. And they, their testimony was, you know, normally we're drilling for minerals or we're drilling for oil or we're drilling for something like this. This has been the toughest, most emotional job that we've ever had to do. It was 69 days before they got out of there. And what they had to do, they had to build a little uh, car that a person could stand in, and if he would faint, it could a harness that he could stay in there. But they're worried about, so if a stone or something is imperfect, gets caught between that their uh, capsule that they're pulling up, they'll be stuck halfway between the mine and ha- up here, and it'll be there forever. And they didn't know exactly what to do, so they they put a lining in, but now this is going to take another couple days or a week. And so they put a lining down through that, that, there, that there's this first one is drawn out, uh, and, and it can come up through. It's going to take about a half an hour, 20 minutes or a half an hour. And they have this, they got everybody involved and, and everybody's uh, thinking through this. Everybody's working together with one goal. So the first miner comes up through and he steps out. And his wife goes up to him. They brought the sicker ones up first. And it, and to see the pictures, look it up on YouTube, to see the pictures of a wife, they're supposed to wear hard hats, but they run over to him and they give him a hug and their hard hats fall off and they just cry. An, another one rescued. And then the second one comes up. And then the third one comes up. In my thought, as I was thinking, holding this up alongside uh, Dad and moving on there, and you know, and I was wondering, what would he tell me now? He stood on the steps and he advised me. He he sat in the chair when I came home early that morning and he had advice for me. And when we did. What would he tell me now? What's important? What does it matter? Which one of those 33 dads do you want to leave down in the mine? Which one of them is, is uh, worth just leaving down there? Let's scrap this operation. It's getting too expensive.
We're spending too much time at this. And I hold that up aside of God's, uh, Jesus' thought. Which one of you, if you have one child, even if you have a hundred, but you lose one, which one of you is going to say, you know, the recovery is too lengthy, it's too expensive. We're not, uh, we're not going to go there. Bob Goff and his thing of about who Jesus died for and who he goes to the wilderness to search for says when we draw a circle around the world like grace did and say everyone is in, we start to see that our time here isn't meant to be spent forming opinions about the people we meet. It was challenging. A commentary said, what sets off this whole chapter is the outrage of the Pharisees and scribes over Jesus receiving tax collectors and sinners, not only receiving them, but being, but eating with them. This was an outrage to them. They prided themselves in being separated from such low lives. And therefore, they are utterly out of touch with the heart of Christ, utterly out of touch with the heart of God. They know nothing of the joy of heaven over the recovery of the lost. Jesus, you remember, went to the cross according to the writer cross according to the writer in Hebrews for the joy that was set before him he paid an extreme price of suffering and death and feeling alienated from his father and the full weight of divine wrath on the sins of who would on the sins of all who would ever believe and he did it for the joy that would come in the recovery of a lost sinner end quote God's not a reluctant rescuer. He's not wanting to give up. He's not saying it's just not worth it. Tim's devotion where love abounds. You know, I was wondering if Dad would be able to talk to me there from his vantage point. How important... Our, uh, us, you and I, our petty differences are on, on the scale as we hold that up aside of the thought. How important is our image and our crops and our plans? What, what does really matter? Uh, Jesus said, in my father's house there's many mansions. If it wouldn't been so, I would have told I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. <clears throat> you know, our mindset, if we, if we keep in mind that we want to save the 33 miners, our, uh, a thing going on today is that they're uh, Thailand operation where there's uh, 13 uh, stuck, got caught in a cave somewhere and they're doing a rescue. I see they rescued four of them and now they're waiting ten hours because of the weather. The current is, is stopping the rescue. If we hold that up against, you know, dad, dad was 30 and then he was 40 and he was like, he was a teenager and he was like 
you know, these beautiful girls from here are these handsome, strong guys, and yet time goes so fast. And and I think if God, if if we look at it in in light of, we don't want to leave any of the miners behind. There's no one in this room and no one we meet outside that we want to leave behind. And if we hold if we hold that up in front of us and think in terms of eternity, I think our petty little differences can melt away. I think if we just struggle, you know, I, I bet you Dad would be less worried about some of the things he fretted about. And I, I wish I could learn that. You know, I wish I could learn that some of these things aren't important. I didn't see it was that late. I'm sorry. Uh, I was kind of rambling on. I'll leave you with two thoughts. When you look at life with eternity in mind, everything else is trivial. If you look at life with eternity in mind, everything else is trivial. And Jesus' goal is no child left behind. We don't want to leave any of the miners down in the mine. I want us to be together in heaven. May God give us that perspective. Let's kneel for prayer.